Let's open our Bibles now to 13 verses 1 through 11, page 282 of your Pew Bibles. I don't often preach from this book of the Bible, and so I'm really excited to begin this new sermon series looking at uh, the life of David. For the next several weeks, we'll be looking at some of the touchstones in David's life, um, of course, beginning today with the, our introduction to David in 1 Samuel 16. Uh, we'll read verses 1 through 11. And um, you might be wondering, first of all, why is the book called Samuel when it's really about these kings? Uh, King Saul is really at, at the, one of the main characters in 1 Samuel. And then, of course, 2 Samuel following uh, further down the life of David. Well, Samuel was the judge and prophet who was responsible to anoint the kings of Israel. Um, He was a spiritual leader in Israel, a great man, a faithful servant of God, and we'll hear that Samuel plays a role in this story today, um, where David will be anointed king as a replacement for King Saul. And so it's called 1 and 2 Samuel because Samuel is is like a prophet um, who oversees these matters spiritually. And um, we'll read where David comes onto the scene. And you might be wondering, when did this happen? This happened at about the year 1000 BC. Um, And so this happened right about the year 1050, 1040 BC, a thousand years before Jesus was born. There's a pretty um, confident dating of these events right around that time. And we find a great summary of what is happening in our story. You might think this is a bit strange, but we find a summary of it in the book of Acts. In Acts 13, 19 through 22, the Apostle Paul is preaching a sermon in Antioch. And he's preaching the sermon to Jewish people. He wants to establish that Christ is in the line of David. And so he gives a little bit of the history of David's life. And this is really going to help set the stage for our passage today. And so again, you might be wondering, what's the background to this story? We find it interestingly, in Acts 13. We could read, of course, 1 Samuel 13, 14, and 15, but there's a great summary of it that Paul gives, where he describes Israel saying, after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, the Lord gave Israel their land as an inheritance. So this is after the time of Joshua and the judges come into the promised land, and this took 450 years. After that, The Lord gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. Israel asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he, that is, when the Lord had removed Saul because of his sin, the Lord raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart, who will do all my will. So we hear there a a nice little summary of um, this part of Israel's history. King Saul often disregarded the Lord's commands. In 1 Samuel 13, 14, and 15, uh, King Saul just sort of does things his own way. He's given very specific instructions on, for example, how to offer up sacrifices in 1 Samuel 15. And Saul says, no, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to do it the way that I want to do it. And so this happens uh, several times in Saul's life, and so the Lord is grieved by this and removes King Saul 
from, um, from his reign over Israel. So the Lord rejects Saul in 1 Samuel 15, but here's this great news that comes after that. The Lord's plan for Israel is not ruined by an evil king. That will be the case throughout Israel's history. The Lord's plan for his covenant people is not thwarted, ruined, destroyed by an evil ruler, which there are many in Israel's history. But we read today how God's love for Israel continues as God replaces Saul with the man David, who would become the greatest king in Israel's history. So with all that um, uh, preface and uh, background information, let's look at our text now of 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, all right, this man who anoints kings, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he took Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither had the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are, your, are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and be- had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Those who are considered to be the first pick are so often revealed to be wanting in some way. This is the case not just in the story today, but all throughout human history we can find examples where the one who seems the best, judging by outward appearance, ends up 
not being best for the job that is required. In the NFL draft in the year 2000, this is football we're talking about, the best player who ever played football was drafted in that draft. He was picked number 199. 198 players were picked before Tom Brady. He was picked in the sixth round, which means that even the team that picked him passed on him five times before they picked him at number 199. The greatest football player to ever play was pick 199 in the year 2000. We could see this also with media and with um, even... Things like television shows in the year 1989, when I was seven years old. NBC decided to show a a new sitcom, which was a little bit different, called Seinfeld. And after the show's pilot ran, NBC got in touch with 400 people who had watched the show. They somehow found these people in a poll. 400 people who had watched Seinfeld, and nearly every person hated it. One person said, who wants to watch two guys talking in a laundromat? Now, of course, we know the rest of the story. Whether or not you like Seinfeld, uh, it became one of the most popular shows in television history. The greatest rock band ever, the Beatles, played concerts in a tiny club in Hamburg, Germany for two years before anybody wanted to buy their albums. Where they were crammed in this little club called The Cavern. (laughs) And they would play these long, long rock concerts and people would get excited who would come and find them, but overall they really weren't becoming that popular. For two years they did this. You could go see the Beatles in a little club. In the year 1891, this painting sold for 12 British pounds It's worth hundreds of millions of dollars today. Of course, Van Gogh's sunflowers. In the year 1905, Albert Einstein, working as a patent clerk, he's not even working as a physicist or as a professor in a university, Albert Einstein, working as a patent clerk, in the year 1905, has what is called his miracle year, where he devises physical theories, theories of physics that would reshape the world's understanding of the physical world. So these examples, and we could think of many others, show us that popular opinion, even the opinion of supposed experts, can be way off. Popular opinion can be deceiving. There can be a wide gap between what is currently regarded as successful or good There could be a wide gap between that and what is truly good, what will stand the test of time. A band or a fashion trend that is thought to be good today could be regarded as tasteless in only a few years. Or a person who is unknown today could rise to prominence in sports or politics or the world of theology even tomorrow. With public knowledge being such a fickle gauge of goodness, how then can we determine what is good? If each of these examples show us that people were way off in in judging the quality of a band or a painter or an athlete, how then can we know what is good? How then can we gauge what is truly good from just what is popular, what seems good on the surface? 
In our scripture text today, the Lord told Samuel to anoint the youngest and least impressive son of Jesse. And as we study this passage, we need to learn two things, two main ideas of my message this morning. What does this tell us about God? What does this tell us about how God views the world or us? So we start with the, the vertical question. What, is, what, what theology do we gain from this passage? And then second, as you might guess, what do we learn here about evaluating what is good on the more uh, horizontal level, even looking at our own lives or evaluating what is good in the world? So we'll ask, how does this passage teach us about what God sees, what God values, and how does this passage shape how we see the world as well? So we begin with the question about God. What do we learn here about the Lord's will, about God's view of the situation? Well, the first son of Jesse, named Eliab, is the number one draft pick from earthly standards. Samuel sees Eliab, and there's this great line, surely he is the Lord's anointed. Samuel thinks that based on an external um, view of, of this guy, that he must be the one that God would want to be the next king. Interestingly, this was um, part of the reason that it seemed like Saul was anointed king. And so they hadn't learned their lesson. The Bible says that Saul was a head above all the other men of Israel and, and height was sort of a, a symbol of greatness in this culture. And so Samuel hasn't learned his lesson from Saul's failures. He looks at the external appearance of Eliab and says, this young man is impressive. But then the Lord rejects Eliab as king. And we find the reason why in the core text that we want to consider this morning, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So the criteria that qualify or disqualify someone as a king in Samuel's eyes are not the same as the criteria that God is using. Who is qualified? David, who's been toiling out in the fields, taking care of sheep. It's the older sons who have been doing the more impressive jobs around the household. They have the physical presence. They have what this passage called the stature of what it looks like to be a ruler, a king, someone with authority. But God sees past those superficial attributes and anoints, calls Samuel to anoint David, the shepherd boy, as the next king over his nation, Israel. The, the Lutheran commentator, a very reliable commentator, H.D.M. Spence, wonderfully summarizes it in this way. God's judgments do not depend on appearances, but on reality. What a great little statement that we could live our lives by. God's judgments do not depend on appearances, but on reality. God sees reality. He knows reality even more than we know it about ourselves. Now the reality about David is that he was not sinless, he was not perfect, but David had a heart that was changed by the Lord, and he had a heart that was 
earnestly seeking the Lord, as you would read all throughout the Psalms. And even when David would sin, the Lord knew and even created within David a desire to repent, to turn to the Lord after his sin. David would make serious mistakes as a king. God knew that when anointing him. David would sin terribly against Uriah and Bathsheba and um, other people in his own kingdom. The Lord knew this would happen, but the Lord also knew that he was going to change David's heart, transform him, and draw David to the Lord's self. So, God, through the blessing of the Spirit, anointed David spiritually with faith in him. This is the external anointing that we read about in the passage today, which corresponds to the spiritual anointing that had already happened in David's life and would remain upon him throughout his life. That's what prepared David to rule over Israel, the spiritual anointing that the Lord gave him through the Spirit upon him. As we read, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward and made him able to rule Israel well. It's interesting, when people think of David, the first story that comes to mind is defeating Goliath, right? And, and I would guess that if you would ask people why David became king over Israel, somebody with a rudimentary knowledge of David might say, it must be because he defeated that giant. He did that impressive thing, um, defeating that giant, even though he was a little shepherd boy. Now, of course, that plays a role in David's ascendancy. But why is the reason that David even went into the battle with Goliath? It's because he loved the name of the Lord. And he wanted to see the Lord's name exalted where Goliath was insulting the Lord and the people of Israel. David goes into battle because his heart is set upon the Lord, not because he wants to win some impressive victory. It's because he loves the Lord and the name of the Lord matters to him. The qualification for a good king in Israel and anywhere else is to love the Lord and to keep his commandments, to love the name of the Lord. Listen to the song of David in Psalm 28. He describes what's happening in his own heart. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. My heart leaps for joy and I will give thanks to him in song. That wonderfully describes, even summarizes, the whole life of David. The Lord is his strength and shield. And there are times where David needs for the Lord to be his strength and his shield, as we'll find out in the weeks ahead. He really struggled at various points in his life, family members rebelling against him, Saul seeking to kill him. The Lord, though, would be his strength. And ultimately, David's heart trusted in God far more than he trusted in himself. So, what does this say then about how God views us? If God sees past the outward appearance and looks upon the heart when choosing a king, we can be assured that he will do the same when choosing who to welcome into his kingdom. Now, that could induce some people to say, but I'm a sinner. I don't deserve to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. You might feel like that thief on the cross who said, looked over to Jesus and said, just please remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that would be a good description of David's attitude towards the Lord as well. 
Just please remember me, Lord. Forgive me for my sins so that I might enter into your kingdom by grace. That would be a good response that we would have in reading this story. Oh, Lord, my heart is sinful. As it says in Jeremiah, the heart is desperately wicked. <laughs> and so the first realization is that nat- naturally we, our hearts aren't clean before God and righteous before God, but God transforms the heart through the Spirit, through his word, in our lives in the same way that he did in David so that we might enter into his kingdom. God chose David knowing the sin that he would commit, but God also knew that, that the Lord would not leave David in his sin, but would draw him back even after the terrible sin he commits against Uriah and Bathsheba, which we'll hear about later. God knew that he would redeem David. He knew that he would put within David a spirit that would be repentant about his sin. And we'll eventually hear that story about how God drew David back to himself through the prophet Nathan. And the Lord chooses and anoints people according to his sovereign will, not according to foreseen faith, but according to his sovereign will. The Lord transforms our hearts to be inclined towards him, transforms our hearts to be inclined towards his law. And it's that person who lives in the kingdom of God, the person who has had the internal spiritual transformation by the Spirit of God. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, God has anointed you with his Spirit irreversibly. He has anointed you with his Spirit knowing the sin that you would commit, and knowing that God will not leave you in that sin, but he'll draw you back to himself just like he did for David, which we'll learn um, several times. When God draws you back, you'll see that he's given you a heart that's devoted to him, that is a heart of repentance, where you, like David, would say, create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, but restore your Holy Spirit to me. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me, says David, the joy of your salvation. That's the heart of someone who's been changed by God and what it looks like even after they sin. So this passage should prompt each of us to ask ourselves, what is the condition of my heart right now? What is going on in my heart, in my mind, in my life. Something that that you, by God's grace and by the working of His Spirit, will know and will be able to answer that question today. Perhaps you need to seek the Lord. Perhaps you need to repent so that the condition of your heart might be not a heart that is, is broken or bankrupt or ruined or stained, but the condition of your heart through Jesus Christ would be a heart that is cleansed, renewed, transformed, made new by God's grace. Someone might be tempted to think that some external criteria are what God cares about as he looks upon you. A person would perhaps say, and I've even heard people say this in the church before, I was baptized. This thing happened to me, an external thing happened to me, and so they're good to go. 
But brothers and sisters, the question the Scriptures ask us is not just have you been baptized, but have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit so that you've been washed, cleansed by the Spirit of God? How do you think of yourself this morning? Another person might say, well, I know the Gospel, I know the Bible. I've done some things that are the things Christians should do, but but the question that we're prompted, I'll preach about this this evening in First Thessalonians, did the Spirit, did the Word of God come to you in, in word only, but did it come upon you in, in spirit and with deep conviction? Did the Spirit produce conviction when you, heard, when you hear the gospel, um, not just initially, but throughout your whole life? What is your response to hearing the gospel? Oh, I've heard this before. Or, I need God's grace every day. That's the heart of someone that is fixed on God. If God has chosen you, if God has adopted you, if God has anointed you with his spirit, there will be an interior change that will flow out to the rest of your life. So what is the condition of your heart today? Now, that's what God sees, the vertical picture. But we also learn here about evaluating what is good, again, um, in ourselves, and evaluating what is good even in the world today as well. As 1 Corinthians 2 reminds us, the person with the mind of Christ has spiritual discernment and so can discern things in the world that are spiritual. And so if you have the mind of Christ, you could evaluate what is good from what is evil in the world. And so Samuel, because he's also filled with God's Spirit, is able to do this and and go God's way instead of the way that he initially thought he should have gone. Samuel anointed the correct son of Jesse, because he accepted that the Lord looks on the heart. I imagine a scenario where Samuel could have been so stubborn thinking, no, it can't be that kid. It's got to be this guy. And so he would have been tempted, I would guess, to move in the wrong direction. But Samuel accepts the truth about how God evaluates people. And Samuel acts in such a way that is in accordance with God's evaluation. So again, how do you think of yourself? Do you look at the outward appearance in evaluating yourself or what is really going on in your heart? Do you spend more time thinking about your physical appearance or your spiritual health? What determines in your mind if you are a success or a failure? Brothers and sisters, we need to be on guard of committing the same error as Samuel in evaluating our own lives. This will correct a false sense of security for the Eliabs of the world, and it will correct a false sense of inferiority for the Davids of the world. It's to think about what is really happening in our hearts as preeminent in evaluating our own lives. The church in Corinth really struggled with this matter. They would often uh, get into messes and experience a lot of division in that church because they were kind of ranking people with unbiblical um, criteria, ranking people as more important or less important to the church. And so the Apostle Paul wrote a, a few letters to this church in Corinth, often trying to correct them to see things as God sees them and not as the world would judge. And so here's what the Apostle Paul taught in Second Corinthians 5. He says, From now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view, That's a challenge. 
We regard no one from a worldly point of view. Their race, their socioeconomic status, if they're poor or rich, um, any worldly point of view, that's not how we judge. Though we once regarded even Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, here's what matters, says Paul. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And so, What matters is not what the world regards as important, but what matters is the new creation. What matters most in you and in others is the new creation, the transformation brought through faith in Christ. Now, this morning I want to do something a little different in applications and and get more precise with how we might apply these things for women and for men. Now, even as I teach know that there are matters that women will particularly generally struggle with that men also need to consider. And then certainly the same can be said in applications for men as well. But the Bible has particular teaching for women and men in regards to what we might set up as criteria instead of what's happening in our hearts. For example, women, do not judge your value by your external appearance. I cannot emphasize that and encourage you strongly enough. Do not gauge your value, your worth, especially to God, by what you look like. That's what Peter teaches in 1 Peter 3. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair or the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self. Isn't that exactly what we heard in, in the story of David? It should be that of your inner self. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. So women, do you spend more time thinking about your physical appearance Or do you spend more time thinking about the health of your soul? Now, we don't want to overreact as some church groups have done. Overreact to the teaching of 1 Peter or 1 Samuel and villainize women who look nice for a date or a wedding or some kind of formal occasion. That can be done certainly to God's glory. And it can be a good thing. But the intention of 1 Peter and of 1 Samuel is to fight this temptation of judging ourselves by our appearance. Now, I want to repeat it. It can be so freeing. I hope it is for the men and women of our church today. We're encouraged here to fight the temptation to judge yourself or to judge other people by physical, outward appearance. Your beauty should come from the inner self, the, 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 the work that Christ has done through the Spirit in your heart, in your mind. So, that's the challenge this morning for women, for men. Uh, it's, it's likely, it's possible you could be overly focused on your external appearance, but it's, it's also likely that there will be other kinds of temptations for you, thinking about judging your own life according to your work, the money that you've earned, achievement or pleasure or youth and eventually all of those things will fade away 
And so if you want to be challenged this week to focus on your spiritual health, the condition of your heart, instead of those other things that fade away, I encourage you to read the book of Ecclesiastes. There's great teaching about how in Ecclesiastes about how each of those other things which have their own good place, work is good, money is certainly good and can be used for the furtherance of God's kingdom. Achievement, pleasure, youth, all of these things can be used for the glory of God, but if they become the ultimate marker of our success or failure, your soul will be crushed at the realization of the loss of any of those things. Judging your own life by success or failure in those categories will result ultimately in despair. That's the teaching of the book of Ecclesiastes. Listen to the last two verses of this book of the Bible. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So, men and women, do you fear the Lord? Are you keeping his commandments? Are you striving towards greater union with Christ? Or is that just a footnote in your life and your real heart's desire is achievement, money, and pleasure? When we're tucking our kids in to bed at night, uh, we like to sing these simple Bible songs to our kids. And many of the greatest songs that we sing are African-American spiritual songs. And there's a great one that I love that always challenges me to examine my own heart. It's, Lord, I want to be a Christian. And then it says again and again, in my heart. So as I sing that song to our kids, I'm always challenging myself, Lord, I want to be a Christian, not just a superficial Christian, not just someone who seems like a Christian or does the outward things that would convince other people that I'm a Christian, but I want to be a Christian. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be more holy in my heart in my heart. It's a, such a simple song, one that I hope is resounding through your mind in the week ahead. Lord, I want to be a Christian. I really, really want to be like Jesus within, in my heart, in my mind. The world will evaluate you by a thousand other criteria by a thousand other criteria, but this is the one that matters, the criteria that matters. Are you a Christian in your heart? Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So are you anointed today by the Holy Spirit and a citizen of Christ's kingdom? By God's Spirit, by God's grace, you can be and will be when you believe. Amen. Let's pray.